Hey, my name is Zach, and this is the Plaid Jacket Philosopher, the podcast for tradespeople and the blue-collar middle class. I'm open to punch a few holes in the stereotypes that surround blue-collar workers and hopefully share a lot of the stories behind how we got into our line of work and the honest joy you can get from working outside of the office space. The plan is to mix in interviews as well as some solo stories from job sites, fatherhood, and personal experiences that led me to where I am today. Some will be funny, some will be personal, but hopefully any and all content here can help broaden what your opinion is of the blue-collar middle class. Hey, hey, welcome to another week. Uh, recently, I finished rereading again 1984 by George Orwell, which is probably one of my favorite books ever. And I was going to do a podcast episode on the book in its entirety, but it doesn't really make sense. It's like it's it's too big of a book. There's too many ideas intertwined within it to really do it in even a, you know, a short podcast series. So I wanted to talk about one specific aspect of the book, and I also found a really good article that I just happened to, to stumble upon this week, actually, regarding the Red Guard in, you know, Maoist China, as the cultural revol- revolutions were kind of coming into full effect, and how the children were actually used to kind of reinforce and really make tidal waves in in the culture, and to really enforce that to change it, because... And again, this is also echoed in the book. That's why kind of 1984 went right along with it. But in 1984, it's a pretty uh, specific theme and more one of the more disturbing themes, even though it's not something that's talked about all that much in the book. But, you know, when in the very beginning, when Winston is doing some work in his apartment building for his neighbors, um, he ends up stumbling upon his neighbor, who's an older woman and uh, her husband, and then they have a couple of kids. And the adults are terrified to speak out in front of their children because the kids are so heavily indoctrinated in in the, you know, all the doublethink, the ingsoc, the newspeak, and all the different ideologies associated with Big Brother. And that happens, you know, through the schools, right? And this is also, again, echoed. And obviously, like, Orwell was a master at the way that he put this story together. It was... You know, it's based off of he's really attacking any kind of authoritarian government. Like he was pretty proudly actually like a socialist writer. And he was, you know, he was pretty open about that. So he was attacking any kind of authoritarianism. But he also, you know, the willingness to attack basically communism and the ideas when that that far left ideology can really go out of control was really remarkable you know it's one thing to speak out against the opposing side of any political argument or any argument in general but to speak out against those who roughly align with your political beliefs or at least for the most part do and then you know maybe they take it a step further but for you to actually attack that as an intellectual as a writer uh, that takes a lot more courage and a lot more balls to do that than just simply speaking out against the opposing side and another left-leaning intellectual who is pretty well known for doing this or who on occasion did this was uh, Emma Goldman who actually took a trip to the USSR it, kind of in the rise of communism uh, she was you know outspokenly in support of this thinking that it was the way to utopia the way to free everybody and to create equality until she came face to face with it and actually saw it and then she came back to the states to basically report on what she had seen uh, in front of a crowd that was very pro-communism, pro-socialism, and 
the crowd just went silent and turned on her because she was telling them some very harsh truths that they had no desire to hear and no intention of, you know, paying paying any heed to, paying any mind to. So it's, you know, it's interesting. Like these these types of people are, they're almost, you know, I don't want to say sacred, but they're very important, right? Like when you can speak down against kind of your own political leanings and kind of keep it in check because that's something that is really important. But anyway, I'm getting off topic here. So the the article that I'm going to kind of be reading from today is from uh, Quillette, which I, I love this website. I love this news, their news articles. And this, this article is called The Children of the Revolution. It's written by James David Banker in December of 2018. And I will provide a link in the show notes for this one. But anyway, before I get into that, uh, this episode is being released November 10th. Uh, it's one day before Canadian Remembrance Day. And look, I'm not pompous enough or anything like that to to suggest that you guys do this honor the Canadian minute of silence for Remembrance Day. But what I'm going to do, because again, like myself, sometimes I need to be forced to remember this stuff. Like Remembrance Day is one of the memorial days that I really hold in pretty high regard. I think we need to we need to remember history. We need to be thankful for those who ultimately paid the the highest price for the freedoms that we do uh, enjoy today. And so I'm going to put in here one minute of silence. You know, if your iPhone or if you listen through Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, like the fast forward button fast forwards 30 seconds at a time. So if you'd like to just hit fast forward twice here and you'll go right back to the episode. But I'm going to put one minute in here. I don't mean to be, again, I don't mean to be pompous or try to force you to do anything. But to me, myself, like I sometimes have to be reminded about this stuff. So I'm putting an intentional minute of silence in here for Remembrance Day. But again, just fast forward if you'd like to, and it'll pop right back up to the show. So here we go. All right, so getting back to the show here, this is going to be focusing on the Red Guard, which were made up of children, ultimately, um, through the Maoist revolutions in China, the Cultural Revolution. So we'll get started here right in the first chapter, or right in the first paragraph here. So, uh, nobody is more dangerous than he who imagines himself pure in heart, wrote James Baldwin, for his purity, by definition, is unassailable. This observation has been confirmed many times throughout history. However, China's, revo- China's cultural revolution offers perhaps the starkest illustration of just how dangerous the pure in heart can be. The ideological justification for the revolution was to purge the Chinese Communist Party and the nation more broadly of impure elements hidden in its midst. Capitalists, counter-revolutionaries, and representatives of the bourgeoisie 
To that end, Mao Zedong activated China's youth, unblemished and uncorrupted in heart and mind, to lead the struggle for purity. Christened the Red Guards, they were placed at the vanguard for revolution that was. In truth, a cynical effort by Mao to reassert his waning power in the party. Nevertheless, it set in motion a self-destructive force of almost unimaginable depravity. And so I'm going to kind of skim through a little bit of this article, but that, that was kind of a good introduction to the idea here. And basically, it was started by a young philosophy professor at Peking University, one of the bigger universities in China. And she had basically made a big character poster, they were called, but it was a handwritten propaganda sheet, you know, written out in large Chinese characters. And she put it on a public bulletin board denouncing the university president and others in the administration as bourgeoisie revisionists. And so this caught Mao's attention, and he endorsed it. And, you know, he, he saw it as a way to eliminate what they referred to as the four olds. So that was old customs, old culture, old habits, and old ideas, right? Eliminating that, that older mentality, the, the stuff that's just out of favor now, it's, it's not socially acceptable. And so this turned into something that was absolutely brutal, so after Mao's endorsement of this poster and of this idea, it started to chain into elementary schools, into middle schools, all throughout different kids settings and different ages. And, you know, it, it was pretty, it's pretty gross, like, obviously, but so the accused, and this was oftentimes elderly teachers, it was parents, it was family members, but the accused were humiliated in what they called daily struggle sessions. And so, you know, students and colleagues interrogated them, demanded confessions, and the viciousness was something that, you know, it, it seems pretty unmatched, you know, when you're thinking about kids. Like, I look at my kids, and I can't imagine this happening from them. Uh, you know, they would beat, spit on, torture, and they started getting really creative, you know, chaining them to radiator vents and beating them with, with iron rods or stuff like that. And we're talking about, again... <laughs> elementary students, right? They, some teachers were beaten to death with sticks and belt buckles by kids. You know, I, I mean, I can't imagine that's a five and a six-year-old beating their teacher to death, but you start to get up to 10 and 12-year-olds, you know, enough of those, enough of those hits, and they're going to start to do some damage. And so students were also obviously encouraged to turn on their classmates. Um, you know, the way that it works and the way that it still works in Korea now is it's the sins of the generations, right? So if your grandfather did something, you are held responsible for it. I think I think the way that they do it is up to three generations. It may be more than that, though. I, I, would, I should have kind of reviewed that before I went into this, but it's my podcast, so whatever. But you can look it up. Uh, in Korea, you know, they still do it, the sins of the generations, and it's it's brutal, right? It's the way to kind of maintain that and pe keep people in specific classes. So, you know, there were the revolutionaries and children of the revolutionaries, and then there were children of, you know, landlords, capitalists, rightists at the bottom. They were labeled rotten eggs. And, you know, it's it's kind of darkly comedic because it even ends up turning on the original young philosophy professor who started all of this. Uh, she ends up getting locked away for it as well, you know, because eventually it all just starts, the snake starts to eat its tail, right? It, it just keeps going, keeps consuming. And keep in mind, so this was all kind of perpetrated and pushed by the students, right? By the, the youth, the revolutionaries. And, you know, it, 
it's kind of dark in reading this this post here. So this is now talking about, well, I'll just go back to the article. So amid the hysteria, teachers, professors, and intellectuals did not dare to stand up to the students or defend their colleagues lest they suffer similar fates. But they could not escape by being bystanders. With every word and action becoming potential evidence of capitalist sympathy, teachers and intellectuals enthusiastically joined their students in the struggle sessions and screaming rallies. And that was, again, just out of fear for protecting themselves, right? Like, I don't know, I can't, you know, it's, it's weird to even visualize, right? Like an angry group of 12 year olds chasing you around. Um, again, it, it's hard to picture like I my oldest son is 10 years old. And so I can't imagine a bunch of kids his age, chaining me to a radiator and beating me with a with, I don't know, like a, a fire poker. It It's just it's hard to imagine. But this is this is what happened. And so going back to the article here, so Mao's decision to use China's youth as his vanguard was, by fortune or foresight, instrumental to the revolution's initial success. The young may be pure in heart, but they are also high on emotion and short on life experience. Simply put, they are natural Philistines. Still in their identity-forming years, China's young had few barriers to a complete identification with the Red Guards. Conformity and intolerance of dissent followed naturally. When students were not attending rallies and struggle sessions, they spent endless hours studying and discussing Mao's Little Red Book. As Lu Lian, a former Red Guard, explained, We were taught only about revolution, so when we read the works of propaganda literature, we really wanted to be at the head, at the vanguard of revolutionary history. With undeveloped mental immune systems, their soft skulls were fertile ground for Mao's secular Manichaeism. Manichaeism reduces society, with all the diversity and complexity of human experience, to a blunt dichotomy. Light and darkness, good and evil, right and wrong, radical and revolutionary, or sorry, radical and reactionary. There is no middle way, became a popular slogan. Ideologies like these are intellectually and morally vapid, yet their simplicity and certainty are alluring, especially to the young. Thus, Mao's child revolutionaries could, with youthful exuberance and clarity of purpose, chain a teacher to a radiator and bludgeon him to death with an iron bar, or force a teacher to eat nails and feces, among other tortures. So again, like, that's, that's dark, right? And, you know, this, this brought immediately to mind the Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote talking about how the line between good and evil runs down the middle of every man's heart. You know, because as soon as you start to to get this completely divergent right and wrong, left and right, um, moral and immoral society, like it's it's too simplistic when you just associate yourself with always being in the right or being good, being correct, and whoever is, you know, air quotes, against you is wrong, is evil, is immoral. It's too simplistic. You know, nothing in life works that way. I mean, even any good book or any good movie, the main characters, you know, the protagonist is also going to have a little bit of darkness in them too, because that's the way humanity is. Like, none of us are perfect. We've all got some little bit of evil in us, you know, we try to keep it at bay, or maybe we harness it for for good. You know, it can also be a point of strength to to be able to stand up and say no to, you know, whatever the case may be. You can you can harness that in, in better ways. But the idea where everything is simplistically right or wrong, uh, good and evil, you know, it's, uh, it's going to lead to genocide. It's going to lead to mass killing because, 
you know, even the idea, the idea of a utopian society means that everybody is in full agreement, right? There's, there is no dissenting opinion. There is no counter voice to anything going on. Everybody has to be in perfect harmony. Well, how do you, how do you achieve that? Really? Are you going to get everybody to agree? Because, you know, we can't get everybody, we couldn't get a hundred people in a room to agree on, on very many facts, especially when it comes to, you know, forming laws or forming society. And, you know, I think the Dunbar number is 150 of, you know, where society starts to fracture a little bit because you can't keep that many close relationships intact and you can't really nurture them that well. So as soon as the the group starts to get over 150, that's when things start to fracture. Things start to fall apart a little bit. You know, like you see that all around, right? You can you can get groups kind of to, to stick together in smaller smaller groups, but once it gets to be too big, you start to get fracturing. So anyway, um, all that being said, I don't know where I, I lost my train of thought there, but the idea here is the only way to really achieve utopia is through genocide, because if you can't have, if you want to have everybody agreeing on the exact same thing, we're all going to be perfectly lockstep. Well, you're going to have to eliminate anybody who thinks differently. You know, they're they're now proposed as the evil group, the immoral group, whatever the case may be. So it doesn't make any sense to have, it's just too simplistic. And I think that was, that's been proven over and over again in history. But, you know, I like the way that this article really clarifies that. And now, again, so there, there were a lot of funny things here because the idea that red symbolized revolution and that you can't stop the revolution it must not stop you know red guards even demanded that vehicles drive rather than stop at red traffic lights which is you know more often than not the results were horrific obviously if you have no rules to the road um what do you think is going to happen if everybody's driving on green and red so you know as it as it started to roll along you know pet cats dogs fish even crickets apparently became symbols of bourgeoisie decadence. And so they were slaughtered in the thousands because again, that was a sign of a sign of bourgeoisie of being, you know, rich, the, uh, the others, right. The evildoers. And again, simplifying things to right, wrong, good and evil. It, it doesn't ever have good consequences. And apparently um, eating human flesh became a macabre proof of loyalty. Uh, the party's own investigations tell of students in the Guangxi province cooking and eating their teachers and principals. In some government cafeterias, the bodies of executed traitors were displayed on meat hooks while their flesh was served and consumed. Keep in mind, this is in cafeterias, in schools. Can you can you picture that? Like, again, when, when I hear or when I read about this story and <laughs> OK, so I'm going to give you guys fair warning. I've picked up the black book of communism which is basically it accounts all the different crimes uh, massacres and just horrors of communism throughout human history probably specifically mostly through the 20th 20th century through you know Mao's China and then the rise of Lenin and Stalin in Soviet Union as well as through Vietnam and I, I'm sure that Look, I think it's going to be unavoidable that it's going to influence the podcast because it's like a 800-page tome. Uh, it, it's a massive book. But anyway, it's going to take me a while to get through. But that's kind of where my line of thinking was on 
reading this article. And so I have a feeling it's going to influence the podcast a little bit. So sorry if it's a little bit dark, but you know, this kind of stuff is fascinating to me. I've talked about it plenty of times on here. History is wild. It's dark. It's, you know, it can be scary. It's uncomfortable to talk about, listen to, or read. But at the same time, like, that's what it's there for so that we don't repeat it. And I think, you know, I, I don't think that people are reading quite as frequently now as they were before, but I know that the consumption of podcasts is up. So I figure, and also, you know, you look at different podcasts out there, not that I'm trying to copy anybody, but, you know, um, just knowing that, that there are other podcasts who kind of do stuff like this, like Jocko Willinks comes to mind. Like he, he likes to dig into some horrors from war or from different atrocities throughout history. And, you know, it, it's fascinating to me. Like that's the kind of stuff that I like to listen to. I like learning about that stuff. And the fact that, you know, he's got a wildly successful podcast means that other people do too. So, you know, if you don't like listening to all this dark stuff, I don't know, I might come up with some way of identifying the podcast like that. Like I've been, I did a podcast on uh, genocide and I can't remember what else, genocide and dehumanization. And it was in regards to the residential school systems is kind of what tripped it off. And then it was talking, I think in that episode, I, I brought up what happened in uh, the Nanking province in Manchuria in 1938, I believe it was. But, you know, the rape of Nanking, there's a very good book written by Iris Chang on that subject. And that's what I was talking about for a lot of it. But, you know, I was <laughs> talking to another fellow podcaster who was listening to that. And he said, man, I had to break it into two chunks because it was, it's just dark. And I, I totally get that. Like, I'm going to try to find a way to maybe identify these podcasts as something different. But I mean, it's history. Like, it's there for us to learn. It's there for us to discuss. And yeah, it's dark. It's gross. I mean, human history is full of this stuff. And, you know, don't think that this circuitry is still running. You know, maybe it's maybe it's asleep at the wheel right now, but it's running within all of us, right? Like, I don't think this is this hasn't been eliminated from human nature. So it's something to be aware of at all times. And again, if people aren't reading about it, then I'll try talking about it on a podcast because maybe it'll get consumed more here. So again, sorry, I know that that was pretty dark talking about, you know, the eating of human flesh and all that shit in, in China. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy to read. But anyway, um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit kind of to the end of it. You kind of, you, you get the feeling of what's going on with all of this, it's it's not good. It's um, it's just moral depravity. There's there's nothing good coming of this, and this all stems from the idea of dehumanizing the air quote others, labeling them as evil, immoral. You know, you can think of them as subhuman at this point. It makes it a lot easier to do this kind of stuff to somebody if you don't view them as a fellow human being. And now, before I start to wind this down, sorry, I missed this as I was going through at the beginning, but. This started in May of 1966 is when the Red Guard was kind of formed, or at least the idea was proposed with that first poster. So from May of 1966 until, it doesn't say in this article the date, but in 1967, so, you know, you can roughly, a year later, even Mao acknowledged that the situation was spiraling out of control. And in 1967, the People's Liberation Army was ordered to suppress the Red Guards, and they did so with brutality. Many of the radicals were killed in clashes with the PLA, while countless others perished in mass executions. They were also sent to labor camps and, you know, ironically or 
deservingly so. Uh, Ni Yuanji, who was the young professor who had first hung that poster inciting the Red Guard, was actually one of the ones sent away to one of these labor camps. So, um, you know, it officially all ended with Mao's death in 1976, but all told, the death toll is estimated to have been between 400,000 and several million people. Uh, Tens of millions more were injured in acts of extreme cruelty and depravity. That's like, again, uh, this episode isn't exactly the most uplifting, but I really, again, like I, I really like digging into history because I think it's there. Uh, I don't need to reiterate this again. This seems like something this I might as well just make it the show notes for the, the podcast in its entirety at this point. But anyway, so we're going back to the article here. So this is kind of where it starts to, to close off. But the word revolution connotes turning, cycling, revolving. Cycles, and perhaps revolutions, are inescapable in nature, the laws of which command, with unbroken precedent, that the young will succeed the old. The Cultural Revolution, however, was deeply defective. Led by young idealists and animated by the forces of purity and paranoia, the revolution could yield only mayhem. No society, no person, no thing can satisfy the platonic ideal of purity. Hence, its pursuit endured endured no end to struggle. More insidiously, the target of purification, the enemy, the disease, the rot, was internal. External threats are visible. They announce themselves by flag, appearance, ethos, and the like. The internal threat is hidden. The enemy is at once nowhere and everywhere. Thus, everyone was suspect, teachers, friends, even family members. Hidden enemies must be exposed before they can be purified. Therefore, self-criticism, re-education, public confession are peculiar but necessary practices in the inward war. Show trials, struggle sessions, and inquisitions satisfy the ideology's existential need for conflict by creating enemies out of comrades. In order to avoid persecution during the Cultural Revolution, many were quick to accuse others, thereby creating a feedback loop of ever-intensifying ideological fanaticism and violence. Inevitably, the accusers became the accused, and the torturers became the tortured. And again, that's just kind of going back to the idea of the snake eating its tail. Whenever you you end up building enemies from within and vilifying, you know, your neighbors, your family members, your friends over some invisible threat, but that somehow, you know, they're the reason why society is in the the situation that it is, the, the shape that it is. Like, if only we could get rid of this group of people, then everything would be good. Everything would be perfect. You know, we'd be living in perfect harmony and utopia, just the way, you know, all of us intended to live, just the way that, you know, back then Mao intended us to live or, you know, substitute any timeline, maybe even including the present for for these terms. And you might be able to draw some parallels. But, you know, that's the again, it all links back to dehumanization. You couldn't do something like this if if you viewed your neighbors and if you viewed everybody as just simply a fellow human being. You know, you may disagree with somebody, but as long as you identify them as a human, as somebody who is, you know, an autonomous individual, somebody who has personal rights, who has, you know, they're their own individual person, they're a human being, that changes the whole scope of things, that changes the whole concept, because, you know, for example, when I see somebody, like, I see a lot of myself in them, you know, it's, 
<laughs> and sometimes that's not easy. <laughs> sometimes I have to really remind myself and kind of kick myself in the ass to remember that because, you know, it, it, everybody's different. Things get frustrating. It's really easy to to simplify people down to their ideas or to to some argument that they're making. And but it's it's worthwhile to remind yourself not to because you know otherwise this is what it it devolves into. We have tons of different different examples to draw on from that, right? Like even the book that I had read a few weeks ago on here, the um, you know they thought they were free by Milton Mayer talking about the rise of Nazism in Germany. Like it's the same playbook, right? Like you can see how these authoritarian systems come into play, right? Like you just and it's it's funny. Like the most the most effective way to do it here. You can see it is by creating an internal enemy. In Germany, it was the Jews. In, you know, in any of the communist regimes, really. But in China here and in the USSR, it was the bourgeoisie. It was the upper class. You know, uh, you got to take them down. And in this case, and again, like I, I already flipped through the Black Book of Communism, but I know that it's going to talk about in the USSR the the amount of cannibalism that went into to play here. So. This is literally eating the rich, right? Like, not even the rich. In this case, it could be eating your teacher in in the rise of the Red Guard in China. So, you know, all this stuff is just, you know, we can get angry, we can get fed up, and a lot of it is justified, you know, because there are, there are different injustices and different things that we could try to tweak if we're, as long as we're careful and, you know, the other, the other thing that's, you know, it's frustrating, it's almost handicapping, it's, you know, you're playing with one arm behind your back, but there's always that law of unintended consequences, right? And, like, (laughs) I personally could never trust myself to be put in a position of authority. Like, it's not something that I I ever would seek out. I don't enjoy it. I don't like it. I don't like it in other aspects of life. Like, I'm even uncomfortable at jobs sometimes. Like, I can take command of, you know, up task but when it comes to delegating and telling people what to do specifically like i i get uncomfortable with that sometimes you know it's just it's something i'm not i'm not comfortable with but anyway uh so i personally i don't think that i could i could do that i'm i you know i'd like to hope not anyway you know i i don't know i the more that i read about this to kind of the more concrete that feeling is that i i do not want that sense of authority ever because you can see how twisted it can get and how quickly that happens. So anyway, I, I went off on my train of thought. Again, it happens a lot and it's getting late here, but I, I really, I don't know. I, I read this article and I had to start recording something. So, uh, okay, so back to the article again. This is kind of as we, as it closes down. So much has been written recently about the excesses of political polarization and the prevalence of an us versus them mentality in politics. The cultural revolution, however, offers a chilling example of the dangers of an excess of political homogeneity. Homogeneity? Homogeneity? Anyway, uh, to be sure, Maoism preached the Manichaean gospel of good versus evil. But all were agreed that Maoism was correct, even, sometimes especially, those who were purged. Conflicts were only over who practiced the purest version of the ideology, not over competing doctrines, because there were none. It was this lack of a distinguishable us and them that drove the revolution to turn inward in search of enemies and impurities.
In liberal democracies, by contrast, purity politics may occur within factions and parties, but the real competition is between conflicting political values and ideologies, all of which provide the productive tension that drives social progress. Of course, liberal democracy is itself a political ideology, but it is uniquely structured around a conception of pluralism that can, that can accommodate disparate visions of what constitutes the good life. Elections, among other things, act as self-correcting mechanisms. A party that purges its impure elements inevitably strengthens its competition. This limits the potential depravity and destructiveness of purity politics, which was not the case in China. Nevertheless, the instinct to conform and to be accepted by our peers is strong within us all, especially the young. When the undercurrents of popular culture pull us towards conformity, democracy alone is no cure, nor is it enough to preach tolerance. There must also exist a multiplicity of views to tolerate. When we tell ourselves and teach our children that diversity is our strength, it can sound a lot like dogma. Even so, it is a dogma worth supporting, if it is intended to extol diversity of thought and opinion. A diversity that rewards contrarians who reject the safety of the herd and those who embody the spirit of dissent, nonconformity, and individualism. Nietzsche once warned that the surest way to corrupt a youth is to instruct him to hold in higher esteem those who think alike than those who think differently. It is a warning we should heed. And so that again, like going back to, sorry, that was a longer run-on read, but I just wanted to kind of close up the last two paragraphs together because it kind of seems like it's almost uh, contrarian in the, in the beginning when it's talking about how, you know, the lack of a distinguishable us versus them is what, kind of bred and continued this ideology where it was just competing forms of the same ideology. That's where, you know, that's when people started to turn on themselves and tried to, you know, burn off the impure believers in the Maoist ideology and in the communist ideology. So, you know, but then I like the way that the writer lays out in here that the difference to that is a liberal democracy somewhere where there are two different opposing ideas but that it's laid out that you are allowed to discuss those ideas. You're allowed to create that tension and that that constant pressure, that tension of pushing against each other kind of creates this path that is somewhere along the middle. And as long as you have that correcting force, you know, elections and and that type of thing, like you, you have a properly functioning democracy, then it allows it to keep the nation and, you know, the population kind of on that, that center course somewhere, somewhere where not everybody's happy, but you're never going to get that in a population, you know, the size of a country, but you're going to be able to keep enough people happy, enough people stable, and we'll keep the nation stable, really, like this is how you keep that stability, that little bit of tension, that pushing against each other generally is a good recipe for that. So I, I like the way that the the writer had kind of you know, pitted that against each other in the closing closing statement there. But, you know, as long as as long as we can keep things civil and keep that functional, that's a pretty good way to keep on the path forward. Like that's it's worked. You know, we again, like in the US it's fairly it's pretty much a two party system, right? Like I hope that the libertarian idea kind of gains a little bit of movement more, but you know, uh, let's just face the facts. It's a two-party system there. And even in Canada, I think we've only ever had really two different ideas ruling the country. It was either the conservatives or the liberals, right? So uh, in both countries, it's it's kind of roughly, it's roughly the same, right? It's It's not identical, but, you know, what do you expect? We're kind of the closest neighbors and we, 
you know, Canada follows a lot of what the States does, which unfortunately means that we're getting more divided lately. But, you know, hopefully things start to turn around here again. I'm pretty hopeful. I'm pretty optimistic moving forward. So, you know, don't, don't think that just because I'm reading this depressing and, you know, depraved account of what's happened in history, you know, it doesn't get to me. It's just, it's something that I like to keep in mind. I think it's, it's, it's worth remembering again, I'm going to repeat myself. So, but I really liked this last quote that they talked about from Nietzsche, which, you know, the surest way to corrupt a youth is to instruct him to hold in higher esteem those who think alike than those who think differently. And that doesn't just have to apply to the youth. Although obviously, you know, my kids being much more uh, malleable in their mentality and in their, their belief system, and any kid for that matter, it's important not to kind of instill this type of stuff into their head, right? And it's something that, you know, I think I think a lot of us tend to, we tend to fall into almost without, unless we're reminded not to, because, you know, it's really easy to to get along with people who agree with you and to, you know, develop a liking more for them. Like I may, I may enjoy discussing things with people who tend to kind of think along the same lines with me. I mean, that's how we form friendships. It's usually common belief systems or just holding certain things in the same, you know, highest regard. So I'm not saying that, you know, like I, I don't follow this perfectly, like, but it doesn't mean that I, it doesn't mean that I hold anybody who has a different opinion in some lower regard. You know, like it's, you know, on a lot of things, like if it's, if it's a moral compass issue, if it's something where it comes down to, yeah, I don't know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but well, no, I can. Nah, yeah, I can. But anyway, <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of opinions that are annoying, but yeah, you've got to at least, again, just view that other person as a human and understand that they could probably teach you a lot of things. You know, you can't dehumanize somebody just because they disagree with you. I think that's kind of the the ethos of that statement and that you can't hold people in higher regard just to, because they agree with you. It's also how you're going to get stuck in um, a cycle of, you know, groupthink and just an echo chamber. You've got to be open to thinking that you could be taught something from somebody who disagrees with you. Anyway, uh, so all that being said, um, it's interesting, right? The the way that these cultural revolutions went, well, specifically the Red Guard in China, because it it started with the kids, right? Where they're the most malleable and you're able to really instill, like set in stone a rigid belief system. It's very hard to break that. And that's something that I think, again, can relate to, you know, every day here. I mean, uh, even in the States recently, I saw there was a big, a big uh, discussion going on about you know, should parents have a say in public education because it is government education? It's, you know, we like to call it free to us. We obviously pay for it through taxes, something that, you know, I don't think anybody should ever view anything from the government as free. It's not, you're paying for it. Anyway, I, that, I digress. But this idea is, it's scary, right? Like, uh, it's not scary per se. It's just, it's, it's gross, right? Like it's, it's something that I think when you see a statement like that, that, you know, as a parent, you don't have a say actually in what your kids learn in public school. That's a wake up call. You know, that's like, hold on, let's pump the brakes here. Like, you're telling me what? And like, that was my kind of reaction. And again, like we have, we have the same thing pop up in Canada. And it's always a, 
it's a tricky line to traverse, right? Like, because when it comes to a lot of the stuff that's going on now, you want to, you know, you, you do want to address some of the, the stuff that's gone on before. And, you know, obviously, Canada's history, again, like we got a really stark reminder over the last year and a bit at the, the discovery of these residential grave sites. But, and you know, that's, that's horrible. And it's something that we should be taught about. Because again, like myself, and I, I did an episode on it before I already referenced it in this in this episode, but I had no idea we didn't learn much about it at all through high school, or through middle school through any of it, really, it might have been, you know, maybe a chapter, but realistically, probably a couple of paragraphs in a Canadian social studies textbook. So that's something that I do think we should be aware of, we should be teaching kids um, the facts of everything and what happened. But you know, there are also discussions uh, going on up up here, right? It's, you know, we had, a, we had a program and it's actually, it's a lot harder to find the uh, syllabus or the, the teaching instructions for it now, but there was a program called uh, SOGI123, which stands for, I believe it's Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. Um, and see, like, this kind of stuff, like, this is where this is where that line is really tough. Like you are tap dancing on landmines when you start talking about this stuff, right? Because, um, yeah, I don't even know if it's something I want to get into. Uh, but you know, I used to have the teaching guide saved on my phone, the PDF version of it, because there were some pretty creepy and, you know, almost, um, subversive things that were being taught. Like I'm, I'm all for, awareness, uh, respect of everybody as an individual, you know, the, I look, I'm, I'm all for that. But uh, the way that, you know, some of the teachings, for example, I remember, and again, maybe they've updated it, I'm having a lot harder time finding these teaching programs now, but uh, they had part of the curriculum, for example, was in grade one, uh, kids had to pick a common fairy tale or whatever, uh, I'm sure that they were given examples. Actually, it stated that in the in the uh, curriculum there. But you know, they were given a, a number of classical fairy tales, and they had to pick apart. You know what the uh, the problem was with the you know the gender norms in them. For example, like I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of one. Even just saving Sleeping Beauty, that she doesn't need to be saved. Right? You know. Uh, women can stand up for themselves, which is very true. But you know, it's a it's a fairy tale. It's it's something to give. You know, I, I would argue that it's something to instill in boys, like the idea to try to stand up, to try to to try to be that <laughs> knight in shining armor. Anyway, I'm going to get off on a tangent here, so I, I'm not going to do that. But then by grade two and grade three, it was talking about how kids, you know the instruction was to label all your your traits basically you know are you caring are you empathetic are you whatever all these different traits and then to say like oh well which one of these might be considered feminine and then it was suggesting you know well you know maybe you aren't all masculine or all feminine because you carry these traits and it's like well hold on you can be an empathetic male and you're still a male you're just empathetic and caring you know maybe you're um, maybe your character traits, maybe you're just, you're not one of these, you know, hard-headed idiots. Maybe you're just a caring, empathetic, artistic, or whatever person, whatever. Anyway, I'm getting way off base here, but the idea is a lot of stuff can come in through the schools, through kids, right? And, 
you know, if you look back at, you look back at this, I mean, you look at, uh, what was that one, that one idiot out of, uh, California, was it, uh, something, was it Grape? No, Gype. Uh, Gabriel Gype, I think it was, out of, I think it was Sacramento. Anyway, you know, like, this idiot got caught in an interview and just, you know, pictures from inside his classroom after he had a bunch of complaints as well from students. But, you know, he had posters of Mao, and I think it was Stalin and Lenin. He had the communist hammer and sickle flag. He had um, Antifa, pro-Antifa stuff, like all this crazy shit, right? And when you're, again, when you're dealing with high schoolers, teenagers, and he was giving them extra credit for attending rallies and... You know, I mean, I'm I'm all for getting kids engaged politically and kind of teaching them the system and all that stuff. But, you know, when you're really influencing them, influencing them and trying to push them in one direction, especially communism, <laughs> please, that's that's insane to me. Why why the term communist doesn't carry the same weight as Nazi nowadays after you look back on history and the unimaginable body count that both of those ideologies carry i it it blows my mind it doesn't make any sense to me but anyway sorry i just realized how long this episode is it's getting really late here i should have probably cut this about five to ten minutes ago anyway um thanks again for sticking around this week i'm i've also got kind of a little announcement that i'm going to be coming out with here in the next few days uh not a few days probably next week or the week after um but anyway, so stay tuned for that. It's going to be a little bit of extra content. And uh, anyway, I'm, I'm trying to branch out into another direction as well, because I think just the evolution of the show. So anyway, have a great week. Thanks again for sticking around, and I will talk to you all again next week. All right, everyone, that's it for today. I hope you found some value in this week's episode. If you did and are interested in more content like this, please rate, review, subscribe, and recommend the podcast to a friend. I really appreciate all the feedback you have given me to this point and look forward to hearing from you again. As always, the podcast page is The Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Facebook, at Jacket Plaid on Twitter, and at Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Instagram. That concludes this week's episode. Thank you so much for the continued support, and especially to those of you who reach out weekly with comments on each episode. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you all again soon.